If you have a Bible with you, you can open to 2 Kings, 2 Kings chapter 5. That's where we'll be tonight. My name is Wade. I'm the pastor here, and we have, on Wednesday nights, been studying the life of Elisha, who's a prophet that we find in the Old Testament. And we're learning a lot about him and a lot from him and the way God used him and worked in his life. So we're going to look at a, a, um, a part of his life that is so interesting, 2 Kings chapter 5. This is our third lesson on the prophet Elisha. Now remember, Elisha's mentor was who? Who's Elisha's mentor? Elijah. Elijah came before Elisha, just like J comes before S. Elijah, Elisha. Mnemonic device to help you remember that. I always have to do that in my own mind when I'm trying to keep them separated in my mind. Uh, but Elijah was a prophet of God in the northern kingdom, and when he was ready to transition into heaven, when God was ready to take him into heaven, uh, he, um, he was with his protege, Elisha, and Elisha uh, received the mantle from Elijah and the power of, the, of God that was in Elijah's life to, to continue on the prophetic ministry. And we looked last week at what that ministry looked like. We saw that Elisha was involved in sharing messages from the Lord and doing miracles uh, for the Lord. And so we're going to just continue to see his ministry unfold in a very interesting story that has a lot of different applications and lessons. So I'm going to pray for us in just a moment as we study God's Word. Before we do that, just kind of a quick update on things going on in the life of the church. Uh, this Sunday, we will uh, finish our sermon series, Fall on Your Knees, Christmas Sermon. Really excited about it. I'm preaching uh, on the love of God displayed at the Incarnation. So uh, be here Sunday morning. Bring your family with you, friends with you. We're going to just magnify the love of God. I'm really excited about preaching that Sunday morning. And then uh, Tuesday, which is Christmas Eve, we will have our... Uh, annual Christmas Eve service, 5 o'clock, uh, right here in this room. Hi, Janice. Thanks for the wassail. Um, Janice brought wassail today to the office. I just want to say thank you. Before I forgot, well, Murray brought it. Janice made it. So, uh, so yes, that's, that's another tradition, annual tradition. Janice brings us wassail. But anyway, um, what was I saying? I'm totally... Christmas Eve service. Christmas Eve service this Tuesday evening. Uh, 5 o'clock, we'll get you out of here by 6. It's going to be a, a, a great time where we sing some songs, uh, hear from the Word of God, and uh, take the Lord's Supper together. And so it's a special time. We know people have different Christmas Eve traditions. That's why we uh, are really cognizant of the time. And, and we'll get you out of here by 6 o'clock so you can go from there and, and do whatever your family does on Christmas Eve. So pretty exciting. This is a, a great time of the year. We're excited about worshiping Jesus during this time of year. Quick giving update. You heard me say that we are at about $58,000 with a lot of Moon Christmas offerings, so we are moving quickly towards that $130,000 goal, and that is awesome. Also, this week we found out uh, that we had uh, some more money given to our advance campaign, which pays off the, the cost of this uh, building expansion that we're doing. And as of uh, this week, we've given over, this church has given over $200,000 to the advance campaign. Uh, isn't that awesome? In addition, to, in, addition, in addition to meeting budget, we met budget for this year, uh, last week, and so uh, to meet budget and, and have a couple more Sundays to go, and then to have that advance campaign giving over $200,000, and we're closing in on a quarter of a million dollars. That is incredible as the work is going forward. So thank you for your giving and your faithfulness. God is blessing in that, 
and uh, we're just excited to see what God's doing. The uh, work is ongoing. Uh, we think that they're going to try to pour some more concrete tomorrow and, and, and get things ready to, to finish moving the, the units around and then close it up on the outside and, and then begin the work on the inside. And so uh, we're excited about that expansion and the amount of space it's going to give us. We, we can go from about 450 chairs in here to 800, including chairs in the choir area, about 750 chairs on the floor. So that's a significant um, addition to our seating space. And so because of that, we think we'll be able to go from three services on Sunday mornings to two services on Sunday mornings. We're basically going to just stop the early service, the 8 o'clock service, and have a 9.30 and 11 o'clock service and uh, get everybody kind of back together. It'll be, it'll be fun. So we can't wait, to see, um, can't wait to see how that goes. It's going to be great. Elisha, part 3, 2 Kings chapter 5. Now... We need to see this entire story in its context, so I'm going to read the entire thing, uh, just read through it quickly so we understand. Then I'm going to come back and kind of make comments uh, as we kind of walk through it in a slower manner. So we need to, need to read the entire thing. It's just, what, 27 verses? So let me just read it for us, follow along with me there in your Bible. The Bible says, Now Naaman, captain of the army of the king of Aram, which is Syria, was a great man with his master and highly respected because, of, because by him the Lord had given victory to Aram. The man was also a valiant warrior, but he was, what? A leper. Now the Arameans, the Syrians, had gone out in bands and had taken captive a little girl from the land of Israel, and she waited on Naaman's wife. Just a quick aside, the ESV says Syrians there instead of Arameans. So when we switch in the new year to the English Standard Version of the Bible, I won't have to keep saying the Arameans or the Syrians. It's just right there in front of you. All right? Okay. It says, So she said to her mistress, I wish that my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria, then he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus spoke the girl who is from the land of Israel. And the king of Aram said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. He departed and took with him ten talents of silver and six thousand shekels of gold and ten changes of clothes. We'll talk about how much that is in just a few moments. He brought the letter to the king of Israel, saying, And now as this, the letter comes to you, behold, I have sent Naaman my servant to you, that you may cure him of his leprosy. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man is sending word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? But consider now and see how he is seeking a quarrel against me. It happened when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, that he sent word to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Now let him come to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. I like that verse. We'll talk about it some more later. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots and stood at the doorway of the house of Elisha. Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh will be restored to you, and you will be clean. But Naaman was furious and went away and said, Behold, I thought he will surely come out to me, stand and call in the name of the Lord his God, and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Ebana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. Then his servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, had the prophet told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, wash and be clean? So he went down, dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. 
when he returned to the man of God with all his company and came and stood before him, and he said, Behold, now I know that there is no God in all, all the earth but in Israel. So please take a present from your servant now. But he said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will take nothing. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Naaman said, If not, please let your servant at least be given two mules load of earth, for your servant will no longer offer burnt offering, nor will he sacrifice to other gods, but to the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Ramon to worship there, and he leans on my hand, and I bow myself in the house of Ramon, when I bow myself in the house of Ramon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. He said to him, Go in peace. So he departed from him some distance. Now look what happens in verse 20. But Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, thought, Behold, my master has spared this name in the Aramean by not receiving from his hands what he brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and take something from him. So Gehazi uh, pursued Naaman. When Naaman saw one running after him, he came down from the chariot to meet him and said, Is all well? He said, All is well. My master has sent me, saying, Behold, just now two young men of the sons of the prophets have come to me from the hill country of Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothes. Naaman said, Be pleased and take two talents. And he urged him and bound two talents of silver and two bags with two changes of clothes and gave them to two of his servants. And they carried them before him. When he came to the hill, he took them from their hand and deposited them in the house, and he sent the men away, and they departed. But he went in and stood before his master. And Elisha said to him, Where have you been, Gehazi? And he said, Your servant went nowhere. And he said to him, Did not my heart go with you when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Is it a time to receive money and to receive clothes and olive groves and vineyards and sheep and oxen and male and female servants? Therefore, watch this, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence a leper as white as snow. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and I pray that you would help us to understand your word. And by your spirit, Lord, I pray you'd help us to apply your word. And God, I pray that you would use this time to give us a deeper hunger for your word. And we'll thank you and praise you for that grace. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to talk to you about Elisha and the leper. This story begins by describing a man named Naaman and describing his physical malady, his physical condition. He was a leper. And leprosy was a terrible disease. I want to read you this quote from A.W. Pink. He writes, There is something which not only thoroughly spoiled the present for him, which is Naaman, but took away all hope for the future. In other words, if you took away the leprosy, Naaman's life was great. He had a great life. But when you add the leprosy to it, it spoiled his present and made the future look bleak. For, Pink writes, he was a leper. Here was the tragic exception. Here was that which cast its awful shadow over everything else. He was the victim of a loathsome and incurable disease. He was a pitiful and repulsive object with no prospect whatever of any improvement in his, in his condition. There is a discoloration of the skin, loss of sensation, and spreading ulceration. The fingers, toes, and nose atrophy. Vision is impaired and sometimes blindness results. As one has said, the leper is a walking sepulcher. The leper is a walking dead man, is, is, is the, the quote there. And so leprosy was a terrible disease for a multitude of reasons. The physical... A toll it took on your body, but also because leprosy was contagious, they would isolate lepers away from society. Lepers could not be involved with, with other folks to the degree that, that normal uh, folks in the community 
could enjoy their family and friends. And so leprosy was a terrible disease. And as we see the story unfold, there are two attitudes illustrated in this passage that I want us to see and learn from and in some cases avoid and in some cases emulate. The first attitude that's illustrated in this passage is a concern for self. To sum it up, you might just write it there in your notes, selfishness. A concern for self. And we see this concern for self in two people. First of all, we see it in Naaman's pride. Naaman's pride. He was a prideful man. Naaman was trained in self-reliance. And he lived by self-reliance. Look what it says there in verse 1. Now Naaman, captain of the army of the king of Aram. He was a leader of the king of Syria's army, and he was a warrior. He had been trained to be a warrior, and so he was trained to, to survey the situation, to come up with a battle plan, to execute the battle plan, uh, to follow up. And he was trained to be self-reliant. He was trained to be a fierce, uh, courageous warrior. And he lived by this self-reliance. He lived with this pride and this pride in his ability. Look what it says there in verse 1. It says that he was highly respected because by him the Lord had given victory to Aram. The man was also a valiant warrior, but he was a leper. So he was a, va- a valiant warrior. But notice what it says in verse 1. It says, by him the Lord had given victory to Aram. So every victory that Naaman had won, who gave him the victory? Now, did Naaman recognize that? He didn't. At this time, he was a a worshiper of a false god. So he was achieving these victories, but he thought it was him doing it, when really it was God doing it. And isn't that the case with all of our lives? Who's the one in control of the universe? God. And if there's anything good that comes out of our life, it's a gift of God's grace. His common grace, his special grace. And Naaman did not see that. And we need to see that. Naaman was prideful. He was trained in self-reliance and lived by self-reliance. And he needed to learn a lesson. Naaman needed to learn that the blessing of God cannot be bought and is not deserved. His, his slave girl said, you know, there, there's somebody in Israel that can heal you of your leprosy. She told his wife, and his wife told him, and, and, and they went to pursue this uh, cure. But he needed to learn that he could not, he could not in his self-reliance earn the blessing of God. He could not in his self-reliance, deserve the blessing of God. Now, he had some things going for him. He had wealth. Look what it says in verse 4. Naaman went and told his master, saying, Thus and thus spoke the girl who is from the land of Israel. In other words, there's someone that can heal me of my leprosy. And the king of Aram said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of, of Israel. He departed and took with him, watch this, ten talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold and 10 changes of clothes. Now, a shekel is about 75 pounds. When it says he took 10 shekels of silver, he took 750 pounds of silver. A lot of silver, right? He had some resources at his disposal. And it also says there in verse 5 that he took 6,000 shekels of gold. That's about 150 pounds of gold. That's a lot of gold. And so he has all of this wealth. He has all this money, all of these riches at his disposal. But he needed to understand that God was not impressed by his riches. And we need to understand, God's not impressed by our riches, right? He's the one that owns the cattle of a thousand hills. And if we have wealth, if we have good things, if we have material things, we have them because God gave them to us. 
right? Grace. But he, Naaman, needed to learn that lesson. So look what happens. He brought the letter, uh, or he brought his wealth uh, in the letter to the king of Israel, saying, Now as this letter comes to you, behold, I've sent Naaman my servant to you, this is what the king of Syria wrote, that you may cure him of his leprosy. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, I am I God to kill and to make alive. This man is sending in word to me to cure a man of his leprosy. But consider now and see how he's seeking a quarrel against me. So the, the, the servant girl, the slave girl from Israel, told uh, Naaman's wife that the prophet of God was the one that could cure his leprosy. But he goes to the king. He just assumes, I'm going to go to the important man in Israel. He'll, he'll be the one that cures me of my leprosy. But the king freaks out because the king says, I can't cure your leprosy. And he thinks that Syria is trying to pick a fight. And so he freaks out. And so in enters uh, Elisha. And uh, Elisha uh, gives him instruction for uh, healing. I'll talk about that in just a moment. But look what happens in verse 15. After Gehazi is healed, I'm sorry, after uh, Naaman is healed of his leprosy, it says, When he returned to the man of God with all his company and came and stood before him, he said, Behold, now I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel, so please take a present from your servant now. But he said, As the Lord lives, Elisha said, Before whom I stand, I will take nothing. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. And so Naaman's saying, I've got all this wealth. Surely God wants my wealth. Because he healed me, and I'm going to give him this as his reward. And Naaman needed to learn that God was not after his money. God was after what? His worship. Because look what happens next. Naaman said, if not, if you won't take the money, please let your servant at least be given two mules load of earth, for your servant will no longer offer burnt offering, nor will he sacrifice to other gods, but to the Lord. In other words, he's saying, give me some some dirt so I can go back and build altars to the one true God, your God, Elisha. I'm going to worship him. I'm not going to worship these false gods anymore. And that's exactly what God was after. He wanted his worship, not his money. And so Naaman had wealth, but his wealth did him no good. You can't buy the blessing of God. But Naaman also had prestige. In verse 1 it says that he was highly respected because by him the Lord had given victory to Aram. The, the man was a valiant warrior. He had prestige in the eyes of the people. So when he goes to Israel, the king of Aram, the Syrian king, gives him a letter uh, to go to the other king and deliver that letter. He had prestige. He had prominence. But if you look there in your notes, God is not impressed by your social standing, but he is moved by humility. Naaman was an important man, but he needed some humility if he's going to receive the blessing of God. So look how God humbles Naaman. This is a very interesting story. Verse 8, When it happened when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, that he sent word to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Now let him come to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. In other words, we're going to show this, this Syrian uh, captain that God's at work in Israel. He has a prophet of God. And look what it says. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots and stood at the doorway of the house of Elisha. Can you imagine the pomp with which Naaman rides up? Horses, chariots, soldiers. I mean, the Syrian, uh, Syrians had arrived at Elisha's home. So what does Elisha do? Does he run out to greet Naaman? Look what happens. Verse 10. Elisha sent a messenger to him. 
Elisha didn't even come out and say hello. I mean, here's Naaman. He'd come all the way from Damascus, all the way from Syria. He comes to the, the home of the prophet, and, and Elisha didn't even get up and come outside. Why? God is teaching Naaman humility. And then look what happens. Verse 10. Elisha sent this messenger to him saying, Go and wash in the Jordan. That's an Israel, a Jewish river. And it flows through Israel. Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh will be restored to you, and you will be clean. But Naaman was what? Furious. And he went away and said, Behold, I thought he will surely come out to me and stand and call in the name of the Lord as God. And I like this. Wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. And so Naaman thought, I'm an important man. I'm a busy man. I've got places to go. I'm a captain of the, the king's army. And I just thought I'd show up. He'd come out, out and do some you know, hocus-pocus, you know, abracadabra stuff, and the leprosy would go away. He's not doing it the way I think he should do it. Again, Naaman is filled with pride. He he's, he's, has pride over his prominence and his prestige. So look what he says in verse 12. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? In other words, I could go dip in a river in Damascus. I wouldn't have to come over to Israel. Our, our rivers, our Syrian rivers, are better than these Jewish rivers. You see the pride here? And then look what happens. So he turned and went away in a rage. And the servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, had the prophet told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? If it appealed to your pride, if it appealed to your your sense of importance, you would have done it. How much more then when he says to you, wash and be clean? So he, I'm adding this in, humbled himself. He had to. He humbled himself. And he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan River according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. And he was clean. Naaman learned that he could not receive the blessing of God on his own terms. If he was going to receive the blessing of healing... From the one true God, he had to do it on God's terms. And that meant he had to humble himself. God is not impressed by your social standing, but he is moved by humility. Now listen to me. People are still trying to relate to God on their terms in our world today, aren't they? That's what world religions are all about. People are trying to to think of a way to make themselves right with God or whatever their concept of God is. And they come up with their own ideas about how to make themselves acceptable to God. The problem is, God didn't tell them to do it that way. God's terms are, if you want to know me, if you want to experience me, if you want the blessing of salvation, you've got to come through Jesus. He's the only way to experience the blessing of God, Jesus Christ. But some people say, I don't like that. I think I can do it myself. I think I can make it to heaven on my own. I think I can make my life better in my own strength. And they're trying to come to God on their terms, just like Naaman was, and not on God's terms. But God's not impressed by our terms. He's not impressed by our social standing. But He is moved by humility. He's moved. We humble ourselves. We see our need, and we do it God's way. So wait, is God really moved by our humility? Turn to Isaiah with me. Hold your place. Turn to Isaiah 66. Let me show you this. Last chapter in the book of Isaiah. It's a really powerful verse. You need to mark it in your Bible if you don't have it marked yet. Isaiah 66. Look at verse 1. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. 
Where then is a house you could build for me, and where is a place that I may rest? You can't contain me, is what he's saying. For my hand made all these things. Thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. God's saying, I'm the creator of everything. But to this one I will look. Who, listen, who gets God's attention? Look at the next phrase. To him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. Humility gets God's attention. And Naaman thought that wealth got God's attention. And Naaman thought that prestige got God's attention. But he didn't need to learn that humility is what got God's attention. And he humbled himself, did it God's way, got in the Jordan River, dipped seven times, and he was healed. So we see that Naaman makes his transition from a concern for self to a humility before the Lord. He knew he had to do it God's way. But there's a second illustration here of, of concern for self. It's Gehazi's greed, verses 19 through 26. We read the story when Naaman says, Elisha, let me give you some money for this healing. Elisha, I don't want your money. Because if I take your money, it's going to be, it's going to be okay, Elisha's the, the, the healing man for hire. and Everybody's going to ride in town with their money and think, I'm going to give you some money so you can perform a healing over my life. Elisha is, in effect, saying, God did this, not Elisha. God did this. I don't, I'm not going to take your money. And so... Naaman says, okay, and Naaman is headed back to Damascus, and Gehazi, who's Elisha's servant, says, you know what? That's not right. Elisha did a great thing, and we ought to benefit from this a little bit. So he chases down Naaman in his chariots, and he says, hey, Naaman, my, my master changed his mind. So he lied. He lied about Elisha. My master changed his mind, and we will take a few things. And so uh, Naaman believes him and gives him a few things, some, some, some material, some, some, some wealth. And when Gehazi gets back, Elisha knew where he'd been. Where have you been? He knew it. And um, he lied to Elisha. No, I've, I've, I've just been hanging around here. And we see here that Gehazi's greed gets the best of him. So what happened? What was the judgment of God? God gives him leprosy. So there's three things we need to learn about Gehazi's greed, this concern for self. First of all, God expects integrity. Last week we talked about how God works through clean vessels, Right? We all want to be used by God. The question is, are we usable? God expects integrity. You remember last week that Gehazi went with Elisha's staff to, to raise the boy from the dead. Remember that story? He put the staff on his, on his face. Nothing happened. But when Elisha shows up and Elisha lays over the, the dead boy, the boy's raised from the dead. God did not work through Gehazi. Gehazi had some character issues, and they show up here in this chapter. God expects integrity. God wants us to live in integrity, doing the right thing, saying the right thing for the right reasons. And Gehazi used deceit to try and gain wealth. He lied to Naaman, he lied to Elisha. And Gehazi was judged for his greed. He was given leprosy as a dramatic judgment from God because of his lack of integrity. So Gehazi illustrates a concern for self. Greed got the best of him. It's not a pretty picture. But there's a second attitude I want you to see here. A, a, a second attitude that's illustrated in this passage. We've seen a concern for self, but secondly, I want to show you a concern for the glory of God. There's a concern for God's glory that is pictured in 2 Kings chapter 5. The first, the first person we see this pictured in is in the slave girl. We see a slave girl's compassion. So turn to 2 Kings 
chapter 5. 2 Kings chapter 5. I want to show you a heroine in this text. A slave girl's compassion. It says there, in verse 2, after we're introduced to Naaman and told about his leprosy, the Arameans, the Syrians, had gone out in bands and had taken captive a little girl from the land of Israel, and she waited on Naaman's wife. So she was taken against her will and against her family's will from her homeland and forced to serve Naaman's wife. She was a slave girl, and she was there not of her own decision, of her own volition. She was forced into slavery. Now, we don't know how old she was, but she's old enough to talk, and she's old enough to serve. She's old enough to be cognizant of Naaman's condition, and she's old enough to remember that Elisha was in Israel and could uh, perform miracles on behalf of God. So she has some, some awareness here. So I'm, I'm guessing she's probably not a, not a toddler. She's probably somewhere in, I, I would guess, somewhere maybe um, 9, 10, 11, 12 years old, something like that. She's old enough to have... Uh, to be aware of what's going on all around her. But this slave girl had compassion for, for Naaman. Look what she says there uh, in verse 3. She said to her mistress, I wish that my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria. Then he would cure him of his leprosy. So she's mentioning here, there is a cure for your husband. There's a prophet of God who, who God is doing great things through. And through this message, this, this act of kindness... Naaman eventually is healed. Now, what's going on here? God loves to work through the insignificant. This is a slave girl. We don't even know her name. She was taken from her homeland, living in forced service, and yet she's the hero of the story. She's insignificant, but God works through her to to get to Naaman. This girl sought the best for her captor. Even though she was a slave girl, even though she was taken by force from her home, she still cared for Naaman enough to tell him about Elisha. And God used her witness to change a powerful man. Look in verse 17. Naaman said, If not, please let your servant at least be given two mules load of earth, for your servant will no longer offer burnt offerings, for he will sacrifice to other gods. Uh, he will uh, nor really sacrifice to other gods, but to the Lord. And so he's a changed man. He goes from being a, a pagan idolater to worshiping the one true God. And it all started with this young slave girl's witness about Elisha. Pretty awesome, right? God works through the insignificant. God loves to work through the insignificant. As a matter of fact, if you look at the great movements of God through human history, I mean, where God sent great revival, most of the time, God begins with someone that's not famous, not well-known, not a lot of earthly resources, not a lot of things to offer from any earthly perspective, but they're just humble, they're available, and God uses insignificant people to do mighty, mighty things. There was a, a revival in New York City in the middle part of the 19, uh, 19th century, middle part of the 1800s, and some estimate that one million people got saved from this revival. And it started with a lay businessman that said, I want to reach this neighborhood for Christ. And so he passed out, he, his name was Jeremiah Lanfear. He passed out uh, brochures that said, okay, at noon on such and such a date, we're going to meet and pray for our city. And the first day, about six folks showed up. And then, before he knew it, uh, after, uh, after a few weeks, there were, there were thousands of people showing up to pray over the New York City. And God sent a great revival that, 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 that people estimate 
uh, swept one million people into the kingdom. And it started with a man named Jeremiah Lanfear, just a businessman, just being available and serving the Lord. There was a great revival in Wales in the early uh, 20th century, 1904-1905, and revival swept that land, and it, it started, the catalyst was a young man named Evan Roberts, uh, who was just a, just a, just a student, and uh, just a, you know, he was, I think he was probably his early 20s when this revival started, and he wasn't well-known, wasn't famous, but he had a, a love for the Lord, a, a, a devotion to the Lord, and God used him in great and mighty ways for the Welsh revival. And so God loves to work through the insignificant. And so listen to me, if you feel like you're insignificant in the whole scheme of things, you are in good company. You, as a matter of fact, you're a prime candidate to be used by God. Pretty cool, right? Prime candidate to be used by God. And by the way, I believe that we need to recapture this idea in American Christianity. Because I think in American Christianity, we've bought into the celebrity culture. That if we can just get somebody famous to talk about Jesus, that's going to change America. Right? If we can just get somebody, man, boy, you know, if Tiger Woods got saved, boy, that would just be, that would just, man, that would be, that would change everything. Well, does Tiger Woods need to get saved? Amen. He absolutely does. I hope he does. I really hope he does. But, but our hope is not in Tiger Woods getting saved. Our hope is in just normal, insignificant folks to say, God, I want you to use my life. And God works through that kind of attitude and that kind of personality. We've got, to, we've got to quit hitching our wagon to just famous people and thinking that's how you change the world. Now, can God use famous people? Absolutely, and he does. But, but that's not the hope of the world. The hope of the world is the church and letting God work through the church and so to get the gospel out. And so God loves to work through the insignificant. And we see that in this slave girl. She had a concern for the glory of God. But there's another attitude uh, here I want you to see. It's Elisha's attitude, which exhibits a concern for the glory of God. We see Elisha's integrity. Elisha's integrity. Verse 15. When he, Naaman, returned to the man of God with all his company and came and stood before him, he said, Behold, now I know that there is no God in all the earth, but in Israel, so please take a present from your servant now. Now here's a, here's a quick little change in the story. The first time Naaman showed up, Elisha stayed in the house, right? Now Elisha's going to meet with him. Why? What's the difference? Why is Elisha meeting with Naaman now? What do you think? He's, he's humbled himself. He learned his lesson, right? He, he, he got through uh, Naaman's pride. And now that he's been humbled, now that he's doing things God's way, Elisha, now I'll meet with you. Now, Elisha wasn't being rude earlier. Elisha knew this man needed to learn a lesson about his own pride. And so now Elisha's meeting with him. I want you to see two things about Elisha. Elisha was not enamored with the desire for fame. He would not take money from Aram. Elisha, uh, from Naaman. Elisha did not want to share the limelight uh, with God. He wanted God to get the limelight. Look what he says there. He said, but, but he said, as the Lord lives, verse 16, before whom I stand, I will take nothing. This is God's doing. This is, this is God's thing. I'm not going to take money and share the limelight with God. God is the one who deserves all of the limelight. And Elisha had the integrity to know that and, and not be a servant for uh, hire, to, to sell the miracles of God um, in that land. And so we see here Elisha's integrity, a concern for the glory of God. You see the contrast between Elisha and Gehazi. 
huge difference in their integrity and Gehazi's lack of integrity. So, interesting story. There are two, two attitudes here. Concern for self. We see it in Naaman, even though he was changed. And we see it in Gehazi. And a concern for the glory of God. A slave girl's compassion and Elisha's integrity. 